0: his betrayal this week we see that jesus understands scripture to speak to his being struck down and abandoned next week we will see that jesus sees another scripture being fulfilled in his ministry all that the old testament scriptures say will surely come to pass in the mind of jesus in the mind of jesus scripture is breathed out by god and is fully trustworthy it is clear it is sufficient But it has become popular as of late for certain men who claim to be teachers of God's Word to try to place a wedge in between God's Word and Jesus. As if we have to choose between following Jesus and learning and understanding and believing our Bibles. If we claim to follow Jesus, we have to understand something very important about Jesus. And it's this, Jesus believed the Bible. He can point to the words of Scripture again and again and again with complete confidence. There's a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, fantastic writer, fantastic preacher, fantastic pastor. After working through the Gospels, he concludes this about Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. Quote, Jesus held Scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately, and he loved it deeply. He often spoke with language of Scripture. He easily alluded to Scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on a cross, he quoted Scripture. His mission was to fulfill Scripture, and his teaching always upheld Scripture. He never disrespected. He never disparaged. He never disagreed with a single text of Scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. And he shuddered to think of anyone, anywhere, ever, violating, ignoring, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, down to the tiniest jot and tittle, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest mark. He accepted the chronology of Scripture, the miracles of Scripture, the authorial ascriptions as giving straightforward facts of history. That is, when the book says it's written by Moses, Jesus actually believed that it was written by Moses. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict Scripture or stand above Scripture in judgment. He believed that the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and absolutely free from error. What Scripture says, God says. And what God said was recorded infallibly in Scripture. Jesus submitted His will to the Scriptures, committed His brain to study the Scriptures, and humbled His heart to obey the Scriptures. He closes by saying this. In summary, it is impossible to revere the Scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. The Lord Jesus, God's Son and our Savior, believed His Bible was the Word of God down to the tiniest speck and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in the Bible could ever be broken. That is Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. So whenever you hear some popular Christian author trying to, in some way, minimize the importance of the Bible in your walk with Christ... You should just know that they're very far from Jesus' view of Scripture. Back to Jesus. Jesus has been talking about His death since chapter 8 of the book of Mark. But now He knows that the hour is nearer than ever. He knows that He's about to die, and in order to strengthen His resolve as He goes towards the cross, He goes to the garden to pray. If we just stop right here, we can be so convicted. We should be so convicted. Jesus goes to God in prayer to be strengthened in his resolve. I go everywhere else but to God in prayer, unless I'm desperate. Maybe you do better than me. Maybe your first instinct is to pray to God and ask him for help when you're sad or lonely or angry or bitter or depressed or anxious. Or you have this financial struggle or this marriage problem or this relationship conflict. So often my flesh just leads me to try to figure it out by myself, to get wisdom advice, to read a book, to read an article, to talk, complain, whatever it may be, but not to go to God in prayer, to be strengthened. And you know what? The text couldn't be any clearer. Jesus is deeply distressed as he prays. Verse 35 shows us Jesus collapsing to the ground. Verse 33 says that he's both distressed and troubled. The word troubled here is an interesting word. In the Greek, it means something like horrified or to be totally overcome with fear. In verse 34, Jesus says that he's so distressed that he feels like it's going to kill him. Jesus is not the God of the Stoics. He does not walk the Buddhist path of enlightenment through emotional detachment. He is emotionally wrecked in this garden. Although he is fully God, he is also fully man. And in the garden, Jesus suffers so greatly that Luke says that as a man, he was sweating blood. So why is Jesus so afraid? It's just death. Countless, i mean, literally millions of men have faced their death with steely eyes and a rigid jaw, prepared to accept their fate. Even some of Jesus' own followers, many of Jesus' followers, face death with a kind of brash boldness. It's just incredible to see. The story of Polycarp as he was facing the fires of the Roman emperor, says this, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little time. But you do not know the fire of the coming judgment. So why do you delay? Come, do what you will, light the flames. So why is Jesus so afraid? Well, the answer to that question comes from something that Jesus said to his disciples earlier. Look back at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This scripture that Jesus quotes when he says it is written is from Zechariah chapter 13. In that passage, the one who strikes the shepherd When it says, I will strike the shepherd, the one who strikes the shepherd there is not Satan. The I in the I will strike the shepherd is not an enemy of God. The I from Zechariah 13 is the Lord God himself. That is why Jesus is so afraid because he's about to be struck down by God. Jesus does not just suffer a terrible death on the cross physically. He takes on the wrath of God spiritually for our sins. Sins like what we see in the pride of Peter. The nails in Jesus' hands are nothing Compared to the pain of his soul. Brothers and sisters, God in his wrath, we believe as part of the gospel, will strike down those who who sin against him. And as Jesus dies on the cross, God will be striking down the Son for our sins. On the cross, God the Son suffers the wrath of God the Father to pay the price for the sins of men. And this wrath that will soon come crashing down on Jesus' head and shoulders, it leaves him utterly distraught. When was the last time that you considered the wrath of God? When was the last time that you meditated on the wrath of God? I'm sure that we've all thought about the love and grace of God recently. But without wrath, there is no love. Ask a mother. Ask a mother about how closely love and wrath are connected. You mess with a cub and the mama bear in the blink of an eye, well, she'll show you her wrath. And it's not in spite of her love, it's precisely because of it. You want to see wrath insult a man's wife that he loves deeply. Because of his love for his wife, his wrath will come alive. It is good that God is wrathful. But it is not good for those who will receive that wrath. For them, God's wrath is indescribably terrible. It's horrifying. And Jesus knows what he's facing. And it's crushing him to the earth. We don't like to think about the wrath of God... But when you do, when you meditate on it, I think it can change your life. It certainly changes your life as a Christian. That person that you're talking to in line at Walmart, your coworker, your neighbor, the person waiting on you at Alfonso's, it's so easy just to walk past them Just to to go on living your life, you know, hey, let me me give you this money for the food that I want to buy, and you put the food in the bag, and then we're just going to go our separate ways. But Look what the wrath of God is doing to Jesus here. Look at the effect it has on him. And the Bible could not be clear. This wrath is the wrath that is facing those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That means that the vast majority of the people that we interact with on a daily basis are facing this same wrath. And we don't think twice about it. We just don't want to be inconvenienced. We just want to go our way. We don't want to have that difficult conversation. We don't want it to be awkward or embarrassing. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's because somebody was willing to have that hard conversation with you. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe it was your dad. Maybe it was a pastor at a tent revival. Maybe it was a friend or a co-worker. Maybe it was a fellow student. But somebody was willing to tell you, hey man, hey woman, you're facing the wrath of God. You should repent and turn away from your sins so that that wrath will not come crashing down on you. And then you might have heard positively and the reason why that wrath doesn't have to come crashing down on you is because Jesus Christ came and He took that wrath on Himself so that you don't have to. And if you just trust Him, His suffering can be yours and He will take your wrath. And then Jesus, as He is crushed low by this thought of the coming wrath of God, He asks what is perhaps one of the most famous questions in all of human history. Look at verses 35 and 36. And going a little further, He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And He said, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's a question, right? It's a petition. I know that you can do this. Will you you please remove this cup from me? Jesus has on several occasions now rebuked his disciples for trying to get him to avoid the path of suffering. But now as he is pressed against the reality of his cross that is right around the corner, Jesus asks, if it's possible, if the Father can spare him, what is coming to him? Is there any other way? But Jesus doesn't end there. We stop reading right before the very end of the verse. At the very end of verse 36, we read, Yet not what I will, but what you will. And here we see the fullness of the humility of Jesus Christ. Jesus, of all people, knows that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. His Spirit is strong. He is ready, prepared to go to the cross. But His flesh seems to be disintegrating around Him here in the garden as He contemplates what's to come. And the difference between Peter and Jesus is their dependence on the Father and their willingness to walk in line with the Father. Here we see Jesus being sustained by his communion with the Father. And his communion, his prayer is an honest prayer. He's petitioning God for a way out. Consider that. Jesus is asking God for a way out. Have you ever been there? Have you ever said, God, I know that the hard way is the right way, but I don't want to. I know that suffering has been set in my path and that ultimately it will lead to my glory, but I don't want to. Maybe you're saying that right now. Maybe in your prayers you're asking God for a way out. A way out of your marriage, a way out of your job, a way out of this church. You know, it's okay for you to pray like that. As long as the prayer doesn't stop there. It's okay to ask God for a way out. As long as the next thing to come out of your mouth or the next thought to arise from your heart is nevertheless not my will, Father, but Your will. There's no virtue in transparency minus humility. There's no virtue and brokenness without dependence on God. And there's nothing good about being honest with God if you're not trying to walk in line with the will of God. It's not okay to be governed by your fears. It's okay to be afraid. It's not okay to be governed by your fears. Jesus here is very obviously overcome with fear. But fear is not what's governing him. The will of the Father is what is governing him. Isn't it so easy to let whatever emotion you may be feeling strongest at any given moment govern your life? You know, I'm anxious and now my anxiety is screaming at me and I'm going to let that govern me rather than let the will of God. I'm angry and I'm going to let my anger and my bitterness govern my life rather than let God. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I desire him or her. We let that ruin our lives. Walking out of the will of God is what happens when we let whatever emotions may be loudest at the time rule our lives. But obedience is what happens when we, by faith, walk in God's will even when we're afraid, even when we're anxious, even when we're sad, even when we're lusting, even when we're lonely. I just want to be with Him. That's all you can think about. I just don't want to be alone. I want to be with Him. If that governs your life, you're going to end up walking out of obedience with God. if we give in to our fleeting emotional experiences, most of us married people would be divorced by now. I say as I look at all these single guys right here. You see that happening outside of the church. Unfortunately, you see it happening all too often in the church. People who were in love ended up falling out of love. And they wonder if it's God's will for them to get divorced. No. Regardless of the emotions you may be experiencing at the time, God's will is clear for your life. I talked about this in Sunday school. You know, how in love you feel with that person right now cannot be the basis of your relationship. A covenant promise has to be. Because when you're in the middle of that raging fight and plates are going flying across the house, you're not going to feel very in love in that moment. For Jesus, walking outside the will of God... It's just not an option. The only way that he'll abort this mission is if it's part of God's will. And so he asks that. If it be your will. I think he has a hunch that it's not. But he says it anyways. And he's not unreasonable to think that being able to escape this suffering is part of God's will. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Isaac. God commands Abraham to take Isaac up onto the mountain and to offer him up as a sacrifice. Poor Isaac, don't really know what he must have been feeling carrying that wood up there. Laying down, seeing his dad grab the knife. Hey dad, what you grabbing that knife for? We already cut all the wood up. But right before Abraham brings the knife down into the heart of Isaac, God says stop. You don't have to do it. But sadly, the same thing will not happen for Jesus. The dagger of God's justice will plunge into the flesh of Jesus. For Jesus, there will be no last minute mission abort. And so he prays, Your will be done. This this phrase, not my will be done, but your will be done. This should be a cliche of Christians. This should be something that we say so much, it begins to feel ridiculous, right? Cliches are cliche for a reason. Catch more flies with, no. Yeah, catch more flies with sugar. There it is. Reel it in. You know, James talks like this. He says, hey, don't don't say today or tomorrow, you'll go here, go there, you'll go work here, you'll go buy this or buy that. He says, rather just say, if the Lord wills. And when we begin to do that, it's like, this guy is so spiritual, so extra. But I, I think that this kind of language is what the Lord intends for us to, to use. You know what I mean? I'll see, I'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing. It may feel cliche, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a verbal way of recognizing that there is a will outside of our own will, and that will is supreme over our will. And that we are actually loving God most faithfully when we're trying to take our will and align it with His will. We should absolutely pray and ask God for things like healing. But we should also end that prayer by saying your will be done. I prayed just that kind of prayer this week as I sat with our sister Catherine Berger. As I held her hand and I prayed that the Lord would bless the shot that she received this week, that it would actually be like the miracle drug that we're kind of hoping it is. And I said, even if it's not, Lord, please heal her. Just get rid of this thing. Get it out of her body. But then I followed that up by saying, but not our will, Lord, but your will. Maybe it's in your will, Lord, that something, that it doesn't work. So if it's not your will that she'd be better, that she continue to suffer. I pray that you would give her strength to accept that reality. It is incomprehensible to many of us, partly because of the wrong things that we've been taught by people who were supposed to be teaching us our Bibles. It's incomprehensible for us to believe that part of God's will for our life could include suffering. But friends, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God the Father loves His Son, Jesus Christ, with an infinite love. He loves His Son, Jesus Christ, more than anyone that has ever lived, that is living, or that will ever live. The reason why we get caught up in the love of God is because when we are saved, we are united with Christ. And the love that God the Father has for God the Son comes to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. God loves Jesus, and it is in the will of God that the Son suffer. Isaiah 53 says, For it pleased the Father to crush Him. As we consider the humility of Jesus, we see honesty and transparency. We see petition for deliverance and a desire to submit His will to the will of His Father. And it's my earnest prayer that this kind of humility would come to characterize our lives as members of this church i want it to just be known that in this church this is just the way that we talk yeah i really want to do that but not my will lord your will be done our text today it it feels like it ends on a bitter note jesus's inner circle is so weak that they can't even stay awake and pray They fail to do that three times. Jesus, their master, the hero of the story, seems to be on the verge of a complete breakdown. But then in verse 41, we see a switch flip. We're going to read verses 41 and 42. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus sees Judas and the religious leaders coming his way, and he, he rises to meet them. And from here until the cross, we will see Jesus like we have never seen him before. I look forward to seeing you again next week as we continue to take the walk towards the cross. Father, our hearts are bent in on ourselves. We are so prone to trust our flesh, to look at our weaknesses and see them as strengths, to see our pride and to love it and to embrace it. We thank you for all the ways that you've already humbled us. And we pray a most terrifying prayer that you would keep us humble. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.